Welcome to Diving Board, a show about artists, the art they create, and the wide range of social and cultural issues they explore. I'm Bill Valerio, and I run the Woodmere Art Museum, where we tell the stories of Philadelphia's art and artists. And I'm Stephanie Marutis of Cuvenda Media, where we produce narratives for social change. On today's show, as part of Woodmere's exhibition, The Pennsylvania Landscape in Impressionism and Contemporary Art, we'll be diving into how artists and curators like Brian Peterson have focused on the landscape as a powerful metaphor. I mean, the journey is, in a, in a literal sense, into and through and out of the, the picture itself. It re- represents a, a, an investment of time and energy uh, on the part of the, of the artist which then is hopefully matched by a related investment of time and energy from the viewer. Exactly how that happens is rather mysterious. And Bill and I are going to do our best to demystify for you some of those creative ways in which artists like Emily Brown approach the landscape. I'm very interested in having a kinesthetic experience in my own work as I work and also hopefully for the viewer. So I think our physical experience is not to be denied, especially today when there's so much digital and some people are making work just as conceptual and it's hard for a lot of people to connect with that. I think we have to be aware of our physical surroundings and taking care of them. As part of our exhibition, you can see how the Impressionists' thinking about the landscape is still very much alive today in contemporary art. In some cases, we've actually paired the work of early 20th century artists with that of artists working today, and it's our hope that through this exhibition, we can open up a dialogue about the Pennsylvania landscape as a subject in art, and to show the Impressionists were addressing important ideas and interpreting subject matter in the landscape in ways that are still being explored today. There are specific bridges, roads, regions of rolling farmland, as well as quarries and mines that populate the landscape of Pennsylvania and shape its economic, social, and cultural characteristics. There are parallel tracks in the way today's artists view and love the beauty of the landscape, along with the urgency to preserve it, with all that means in the context of a shared sense of place. A part of what inspired me to have Woodmere do this exhibition were two works of art that I thought about in relation to each other. One is a painting by William Lathrop called Twilight After the Storm, and it dates back to the turn of the 20th century. The other is a 2015 photograph called Day In Tonight by photographer Ron Tarver. The two pieces share compositional similarities like the low horizon, the subtlety of the edge of the horizon, and the sky overtaken by darkness that creates a moody atmosphere. Here's Ron talking about his photograph that he took near the Jersey Shore at the Edwin B. Forsyth National Wildlife Refuge. You could almost see the nighttime sort of moving across the land. It was just bizarre. Like there was a big split. It was just the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. I think also, too, that this image sort of speaks to the compositional aspect that I really enjoy trying to figure out. It's like how do all the elements 
in the photograph work, like the things balance out. And I thought it had a really nice informal balance with the clouds as opposed to the, the land and the darkness and the light. For me, it just had that balance that, I, that I'm always looking for. And when you look closely at Ron's photograph, you can even see a tiny streak in the sky from a jet plane. So even though it seems like a pristine landscape, there's presence of humans. From the jet stream in the sky to the water towers deep in the background, Ron was a longtime photojournalist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and describes his work as minimalist, but in search of the sublime. I hope that people will sort of just get lost in it and maybe think about it, just think about the vastness of it and the you know, the sublime quality to it. I really love that idea of just being in this space that's almost, you know, you can't comprehend because I think it has certain elements of sort of cosmological sort of events that happen. You know, every day we have this experience of we have day and night that happen, but to actually kind of see it happen, I think, is kind of fun. I think the work that I make uh, when it involves landscape, I, I try and sort of keep that ahead of me and hopefully maybe the viewer will connect in that way too that we are just privileged to be here you know and hopefully you know this picture and some of my other work will sort of remind us of that another documentary photographer who has work in the exhibition is keith mcmanus I tend to be a little bit on the subtle side with things. That's my inclination. And, and so instead of beating people over the head with something, I, hopefully someone will stop and take time and, and read the image. He originally grew up in southwestern Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh, and starting in 2005, he spent 11 years photographing the Monongahela River Valley. Over the years, he documented the region's declining economic changes, like in this photograph chosen for the exhibition. It's called Brownsville, Pennsylvania. When I was growing up, it was a really busy river town. I mean, there was railroads there, and there was industry, and my father bought his Studebakers there, and so I, you know, I knew a lot about Brownsville. Brownsville is about 20 minutes away from where Jim grew up in Uniontown, and his photograph shows a bridge crossing the Monongahela River with the town on one side along train tracks. By the time I got back there in, in 2005, it was pretty much a ghost town. It had a, a sad history in that a developer had bought most of the buildings, and he was interested in creating a riverboat casino and turning the town into some sort of destination, and it never happened. And so a lot of downtown Brownsville has been torn down because the buildings were unsafe and not repairable. But this photograph is looking on the river, and uh, we're looking at a um, down on a landing where they would have concerts uh, next to the river, and there's a bunch of solar panels. And then to the side of that is a line of empty coal cars. Of course, you know, this is, you know, southwestern Pennsylvania, and, and coal is a, a major ingredient even this uh, day and age. So it, it kind of captures the new and the old because you have solar power there, and then you have the, the coal cars. And that they're empty might be a sign that things are changing <laughs> instead of full of coal. And some of those buildings that are in that photograph are no longer in existence. Besides photographing southwestern Pennsylvania over a long period of time, Keith has also spent many years taking pictures of what eventually became the Flight 93 National Memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. He started going there after September 11, 2001, and watched the landscape turn into a memorial 
over time. I decided to photograph Shanksville because all the attention was being paid uh, pretty much to uh, New York City and to the Pentagon. And this was an interesting place. The photograph he has in the exhibition is called The Aura of Nostalgia, and it captures what the temporary memorial had looked like before the official one was built. The photograph in the exhibit is of a rock that is covered with all sorts of items. It's almost, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, they're like little trinkets. And um, in the out-of-focus background is uh, an American flag, which is planted at the point of impact where the aircraft crashed. And the reason why I took the picture was people would come to this temporary memorial to see it and felt compelled to leave something behind. However, they had not planned for it. And so they were leaving behind the most curious items. And, um, you know, I went through several times to photograph, and uh, this was one of the more successful documents of that part of the temporary memorial. The new memorial is quite elaborate and never quite, for me at any rate, had the kind of intimacy that this original temporary memorial had because it was not organized and it was, you know, really heartfelt. You could get that feeling. And the new one is, like I said, quite beautiful, but in a strange sort of way, uh, also sterile. A place that appears in the exhibition more than once is the Wissahickon Valley Park, which is, coincidentally, down the road from Woodmere. It's an expansive stretch of parkland here in northwest Philadelphia. And what we're hearing right now is the sound of the Wissahickon gushing over old stone walls. Both today and in the past, artists have been drawn to the creek and its surroundings. And to help give us some historical context for the Wissahickon, we invited Mara McCarthy to be part of our conversation about some of the artwork in the exhibition and to tell us more about the park. After all, Mara knows it very well, as she's the executive director of the Friends of the Wissahickon, a nonprofit that collaborates with Philadelphia Parks and Recreation to take care of the park. And by the way, the Wissahickon's Forbidden Drive was named the 2018 Pennsylvania Trail of the Year. Pretty impressive when you think about it in the context of the entire state of Pennsylvania. And we here in Philly, of course, know the Wissahickon is a gem. And here's Mara with a little bit of history about how it came to be. It's not a coincidence that the acquisition of much of the parkland happened through eminent domain after this sort of romanticized, unpeopled view of what a park should be became a sort of predominant like narrative of how land was added to the Wissahickon. Originally, it was this tiny little ribbon just around the creek base itself. And then it slowly expanded over a period of time through a combination of donations of land, purchase of land by the city of Philadelphia, and acquisition through eminent domain. And a lot of the eminent domain acquisitions happened, I think, after the turn of the century, after 1900. My personal theory is pushed forward by this idea that a naturalized landscape had no room in it for people and objects, and it needed to be contiguous. And there's reference in like the FOW records about planting trees to block out the unsightliness of human development along the periphery of the park. 
which I think is really interesting because we had fully annexed that, our species as humans had fully annexed this piece of land, and we had just reimagined it as this pristine place. We really see this notion of the Wissahickon as a pristine place in the paintings of Walter Elmer Schofield. When I look at his 1920 painting, Wissahickon in Winter, I feel like the Wissahickon is this eternally natural place. Even though when Schofield painted it, the Wissahickon had been newly restored to its natural state after many years of industrial use by 70 mills that used the water of the creek as their energy source. And you can see what some of these mills looked like in the stereo view photographs of James Kramer included in our exhibition. Kramer was a 19th century photographer in Philadelphia whose famous series, Views of Fairmount Park, introduced Philadelphia's beauty and the urban, social, and economic uses of the park to the world. For Kramer, these multiple uses of the park were not contradictions. Whereas for Schofield, a generation later, industry was not so welcomed in the beauty of the park. And I think I know him well enough as an artist to say that he was glad a plan was implemented to remove the mills from the creek. The Schofield painting is very much sort of trying to harken back to an unpeopled, pristine landscape. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something that you keep seeing like resurgent throughout the development of this piece of parkland, which is an urban landscape, but is constantly and vigorously reimagined all the time by people who live in it, by the people who manage its public lands, as a space that should be essentially seen without people. Interestingly, photographer Ron Tarver, who we heard from earlier in the show, found the spot in the Wissahickon where Schofield made the painting. He took a group of photographers in Woodmere's studio program down to the creek, and he ended up taking a photograph called Flow. It zooms in on a rock where the water is rushing around it. When you're enjoying a landscape in the company of thousands of other people, you hone in on the smaller aspects and the nuance. And I think Ron's photograph does that really beautifully. The thing that's captivating him is not his solitariness in the wilderness, per se. It's the nuance and the sort of detail of nature that he's encountering. And I think that's a a pretty subtle but a pretty uh, definite distinction that you can see in the way we translate how this park is imagined over time. And sort of considering in the context of Schofield's painting is very much cognizant of the fact that this is a reconstructed landscape. Look at what we made is what this says, right? And I feel like Ron's photo says, look at what's endured. And I think that's a real difference in the view being pointed at these two images. And today, the Wissahickon has become increasingly popular. And Mara says usership has gone up over the past 25 years. You can also see in the park the many different ways in which people have expressed how they feel about the space. All along Forbidden Drive, there are benches with plaques that people have sponsored to commemorate a loved one. What we need to do is give people an opportunity to inscribe themselves in the landscape without damaging the landscape. And that's, I think, where art can really come into play as a device to help people experience and process their time outdoors. So, I mean, to me, this is all forms of human expression in connection with 
this landscape. And more recently, a black leather notebook has appeared on the red-covered bridge, where people can write letters to the bridge or to other visitors passing through. Mara and I actually walked down to the bridge together to read some of the letters. This one says... My two friends and I took a lovely walk hike today. When I walked up and saw this bridge, I felt so excited and peaceful at once. Thank you for the chance to stand here in peace and write a love note to water, wood, wind, and earth combining to form this bridge. Dear Wissahickon, you are always there for me. No judgment. Love, Mason. I walked here often with my beloved dog, Henry. These trails were his favorite spots, and he loved going to the water's edge and splashing around in the creek with his friends below the bridge. Henry was my world, and this place will always be so special to me. Rest peacefully, my faithful friend. I'm about to move to northern Wisconsin, where I'll live right by Lake Superior. Over the past few months, you've meant a lot to me. I'll be back again. It's just amazing how much sentiment there is for a bridge that originated for industrial purposes, but is now a treasured landmark where people come to gather, take shelter from bad weather, sit and reflect. And I think that that's what you get out of this experience. You come here, you walk, whether you're focusing on the modes of use and the other people who are sharing the park with you or not, you're going to see visual cues that anchor you. You're gonna hear elements of the park that will also anchor you, whether it be bird song or rushing water or wind through trees. And those will be the cues that actually are creating these spaces for you. So. You know, whether you're subscribing to this sort of populated park-like space or a natural protected area, you can essentially get both of those things here. Hello, officer. You can hear a police officer riding by on his bike. For most urban folks, those are reassuring sounds. You want to see and hear the police officer riding by on his bike. Hi, officer. And I think that that's what's the unique experience of Wissahickon as a public urban park, is you're getting the best in some ways of both worlds. What I did was just bike through Forbidden Drive and watch what people were doing and then shoot something every so often. And then in the editing process, I figured out how to put these together so that a certain kind of paradoxical space resulted. That's Peter Rose, a contemporary artist who works in film, video, and audio. And for our exhibition, we selected a 3D video that takes us through various landscapes, starting at the Wissahickon, where he spends a lot of time walking and riding his bike. You're looking at people coming and going, and they're somehow doing actions that are impossible, and yet you're looking at it visibly. In some ways, that, that particular section was a discovery, as is true of a lot of the work. I don't quite know what I'm doing. I'm throwing things together, and if they're interesting, then I play with them a bit more. And the whole piece is a kind of a consequence of that kind of exploration. In addition to the Wissahickon, Peter has included images of the skateboard park near the Philadelphia Museum of Art and the iconic Mummers Parade, along with other scenes outside of Pennsylvania, including a journey to New York City. I think the sections are very contradictory in certain ways. This isn't one long piece. It's a suite of you know, short little meditations on the human presence in the landscape. And they're quite 
variable in their tonalities. Some are kind of poetic, some are more like documentaries, some are like little performances. Um, it's really trying to hit a number of different notes throughout the breadth of the piece. And a lot of it's very much tied into landscape and the human presence in the landscape, human activity in the landscape, the way the landscape's been changed by human activity. That's, you know, sort of what unifies it all. But within that unity, I think it's actually very variegated. As part of his 3D work, Peter says he's trying to create a new kind of enriched visual experience and new forms of seeing, given that 3D video technology is an increasingly important element integrated into the social and economic technologies of today. I always come back to the skateboard park image, which, you know, I hung out at the skateboard park down by the museum, and I shot these guys, and there was something thrilling about what they were doing with their boards in that space. And then what I was able to do with their image was, I think, kind of interesting. I created this kind of hyperdimensional space that they were playing with. And to the extent that my whole piece is about playing with hyperdimensional space, I think that image kind of summarizes the attempt in, in a rather visible way. But a lot of it is very much about discovery, playing with things and discovering things, discovering phenomena that I hadn't anticipated. I keep hearing this throughout as we've done this series. I think it's reassuring with artists say, no, I just, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> I'm just going into it. Well, that's the paradox. We're supposed to know what we're doing at every moment. And in fact, I think for certain, certain kinds of work, I think that makes sense. But I think for many of us, it's the process of discovery that makes it worthwhile, that redeems the whole experience. We learn what our work is about in the process of making it, as opposed to having a clear script that we're following at the outset. And the work that I do, which I would describe as experimental, fits very much into that approach. I make work in order to be surprised. Another work in the exhibition that captures a more natural view of Philadelphia's Fairmount Park is Winter Beach by Emily Brown. It's an ink wash on watercolor paper, which Emily created in her studio after taking a photograph of a snow-covered beech tree in Fairmount Park. I'm very interested in the material of the ink and water and mixing them on the page and how alive that can feel, where if I just put it on and let it be as it is when I put it on, it would be much more a solid kind of mark. Part of what I like about this drawing is that there are relations of many things. And it it is, of course, about the, the beech tree, but it's also about its setting and how other things influence how you see it. That's just part of our great experience, that nothing is solo, nothing is isolated. And that's part of the attraction to landscape for me all, always, is that it's a matter of relations of relations. And that's kind of how I think. This one has a certain sense of long, smooth things and then bunchy things and how they are related to each other. Of course, it's about the tree and the underbrush and the other trees behind it, but it's also, to me, it has to do with the texture and the need, the satisfaction we get out of viewing that and considering it because it's part of our own personal experience. Besides texture, Emily is also drawn to bringing out the spaces within the landscapes that she paints. Well, it's always changing, and how you see it changes as you change, because we're always changing. We're not stable or static. 
even in a given year or something, you might really find different things about it, depending on your state of mind and, you know, what concerns you have. I'm a member of a friend's meeting, and silences are really important. I think passages of rest and letting us move back and open ourselves to something new is very useful to me, and I, th- I think everybody's getting that. There's more and more meditation going on. But I've always thought of spaces What's happening between things in my work as well as what the object or the mark itself is? Emily has spent much of her career as a painter doing work en plein air, and she goes back and forth between her studio and the outdoors. I would encourage people to go out and try drawing and painting outside because they experience it in a very different way than if they're not. They have to stop and notice and let things happen around them and sort of become not invisible but selfless in a sense. that You have to go out without an agenda and just let things happen to you and become more aware of what things look like. And, and it's a fascinating experience just to let that happen. It's a kind of meditation. You let that experience go through your brain and your arm and to the tool you're holding and make some marks that relate to what you understand. It's a kind of purifying experience for me, and I guess that's why I've kept doing it, because it's letting go of all the other stuff that you worry about all the time and valuing this and realizing there's a lot of things you see with the light changing and animals, people that pass through, wind, sounds and stuff that normally you just are cut off from because you're dealing with other needs or being entertained somehow. But this is a focus that has really fed me very well. As my colleagues and I put together this exhibition, we consulted and talked extensively with Brian Peterson, an accomplished contemporary artist and curator. He is the former Marguerite and Jerry Lenfest curator of the James A. Michener Art Museum. Brian is most responsible for shaping our understanding of the achievements of the Pennsylvania Impressionists, and we couldn't have done this exhibition without the example of his scholarship. I feel like this journey we were talking about is really, really what it's all about. It's the journey of life. So all artists are doing is the same thing everybody else does. We do it with a little bit more consciousness. Or we, we dive into it with both feet instead of putting one toe in the water. We're more intrigued by it. For myself, it's been this journey toward a kind of um, psychological wholeness. That I often think that it, it's, the real journey is that the making of the art is kind of like the breadcrumbs in the forest, you know. But the real journey is, is one's own soul, one's own self, one's own liberation. I mean, career is important, but career is, is ephemeral and a shimmer. You know, it's a fleeting illusion. There's always somebody else who's more famous than you and more successful, and it can become a fetish. But what's really important is, you know, who am I? How have I grown? What have I become? And it's also, to me personally, tied up with a kind of moral approach to life. In his own art-making career, Brian has made landscape-based videos that speak volumes to his role as the premier curator of Pennsylvania Impressionism. As a curator who's always been a practicing artist, one of the strengths that he's brought to the world of museums is a sensitivity to the soul of contemporary art. Here's Brian talking about the work of Emily Brown. 
because it takes a lot of technical confidence to be able to be that spontaneous and to trust. I mean, you you, you can't erase these things, you know. I mean, it's it's, it's ink applied to paper. I mean, you you can mess with it a little bit, I think, but it's basically you have to be able to trust your own instincts about about where it's going. And um, it's very hard to find words for these things, but one follows one's one's feelings. And when you, when you've done done it as long as Emily has, and, and so good at it as she is, you get to where you you can trust what your hand is doing, and you can follow that instead of saying, "Well, I've got to plan the whole thing out, and and uh, this is going to be a picture about the etherealness of the soul." Yeah. As uh, you know, you know, you're not thinking that. It, but but what happens is your your soul speaks. If you're if you're rooted in it, you make decisions that you look back at it later. Wow, that was a good decision I made. I don't remember making it. <laughs> You know, but uh, I guess my instincts were, were were right on that one. It, it, that just, uh, that's something that doesn't happen, except after years and years of just steadily in a disciplined way, doing doing the dance. You know, and, and um, so some are better than others, but you you persist because you know that this is possible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then then when you when you get there, it's, it looks so easy, right? I mean, Brian continued to work at the Michener Museum until recently. But at the same time, he's had to adjust his career and his art practice. He's had to take on the responsibility of managing his Parkinson's disease. I feel incredibly fortunate, and every day I try and, you know, my own, my own way, kind of get down on my knees and say big thanks to the universe for because the fact that I was able to have the chops, the, the abilities, the potentials, and then because of a lot of different reasons, I managed to, in some sense, bring it to fruition, at least in some sense, whatever that means, I don't know, but... Gosh, that's a, such a, a lucky, a lucky, lucky, lucky person I am to, to be able to do that. And and, um, and so I, I, I've made the journey, in a sense. Not that it's over, but I have to look at it that way. And I mean, I really, my own ability to, to do what we're doing right now is, is, is under attack. My voice is challenged, and many other things are challenged, I can tell you. Now I, I, I want to grab hold of everything I can. And, and, and doing this, this kind of conversation is really, I live for this kind of stuff, it's... it's you know, we, we we speculate, we dig, and we connect with works of art that are by wonderful people who themselves gave their whole lives to, to this activity. And um, and uh, it's a privilege. I, I love to do this kind of stuff, so I thank you for, for, for the opportunity, Bill. People ask me when I retired what kind of monument I want. Well, I, I, I got a stack of 10 books that, that I did, and that, that, that's good enough for me. And I love Brian's books and recommend them to everyone. They bring art and spirit together in a unique way. I hope you come see the Pennsylvania landscape in Impressionism and Contemporary Art in person. The exhibition runs from September 22nd through January 27th, 2019. And be sure to visit woodmereartmuseum.org for more information about the exhibition and all the related events. You can follow us on social media at Woodmere Art. And special thanks to Brian Peterson, Emily Brown, Peter Rose, Keith McManus, and Ron Tarver for taking the time to talk with us. And of course, all of the artists featured in the Pennsylvania Landscape Show. We all want to thank Mara McCarthy from the Friends of the Wissahickon for talking art with us and taking a walk together in the woods, and Michaela Prell, who's interning with Cuvenda Media for her production assistance. Thanks for listening. Until next time, 